You're listening to a CFCC audio podcast. For news and service times, visit www.cfccnet.org. Good evening. Good evening. It's so good um, to have you here this evening. Uh, As we uh, remember, we're here to remember tonight. Um, Sunday, we will have a great celebration tonight. We remember the incredible price um, that was paid that we might have life. Um, This afternoon, I was just reflecting some of Christ. And those moments on the cross, and and it really amazed me, I've never really thought of it in this context, how Christ cared for so many people on the cross. Uh, He cared for the crowds who were accusing him and chanting against him and mocking him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He cared for them. He cared for his mother Um, He said, John, your mother, he was concerned about his mother. He's hanging on a cross. He cared for her. He cared for the thief next to him. Did he not? Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And he cared for every one of us in this room. Because he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Christ was forsaken so that you and I might be forgiven and accepted. God turned his back on sin that Christ carried and in reality, his back on Christ. That was not... um, any type of play acting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was very real. Yet tonight, as we remember the price that was paid, we are here forgiven and accepted, children of our mighty God. It's so good to see you this evening. Um, Sunday is going to be a great day. Tonight is going to be a great night. Um, Sunday morning, I just want to remind you, pancake breakfast at 8.30 a.m. It's going to be a a good time of fellowship as we begin the celebration. And um, then a week later, we are having a spring fest. We hope that the guests that we have on Easter will return. And some of your friends and neighbors might come with you on Sunday morning and then take part in our spring fest, a great time for families. Um, Before I say one more word, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. We thank you that he indeed was the perfect image of you, our Father. 
Father, we thank you for his example on the cross. We thank you for the words he said. We thank you that literally he cared for others again and again and again on the cross. Father, we worship and are blessed to have an incredible Savior. We thank you for him. We thank you for our Savior and our King and the price he paid that we might have life. Father, we love you. We continue to worship now to remember. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who had considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accustomed to righteous. And he shall bear their inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's funny. Um, years ago, I was going to speak on Easter Sunday and my wife Kim sort of... Um, and you're still married. Yeah, I'm still married. 30 years later, I'm still married to my beautiful wife Kim. I have uh, two great kids, uh, Aaron and Mariah, a, a third daughter, uh, Patty, who um, is our foster daughter, and uh, she's amazing. Um, I was going to speak on Easter, and Kim asked me what I was going to speak on. And of course, she was only asking that out of politeness. She figured I would say the resurrection of Jesus. It's Easter. And I said, I'm going to speak on beauty. And, and she looked at me with such frustration. She says, what? And I said, yeah, I'm going to speak on beauty because really, if you look at the scriptures, um, the human story is the interweaving the tension between tragedy and beauty. And what Ecclesiastes says is that God makes all things beautiful in its time. And it tells us in the scriptures that we did not uh, consider Jesus beautiful. We considered him um, hideous and that we saw no beauty in him. And yet the scriptures also tell us that Jesus is the beautiful one. And I think it's interesting they had this interweaving between beauty and tragedy to the very end of Jesus' life. And then you have this, uh, the, the consummate tragedy of all human history, the death of God, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in the world's greatest tragedy, you have the greatest moment of beauty. And it's interesting now, even generations later, thousands of years later, people wear crosses, not as a declaration of tragedy, but really as um, um, a, a metaphor of beauty. And when we think of the cross, it actually becomes um, a declaration of hope rather than of despair. And, and, and it, does, it shouldn't surprise us that God brings this moment where tragedy and beauty collide. And they, in a sense, crush Jesus on the cross. He's crucified, buried, and then raised on the third day. And it's, it's the most profound declaration that out of every tragedy, God will create beauty if we will allow him. And that's what I love about the, the romance of the cross, that in our greatest act of violence, God was executing his greatest act of love, that where there was the greatest moment of despair, God was giving us our greatest hope. When the hate of the world was exercised in a moment, the love of God was unleashed to us in that same moment. Uh, the cross is where the interweaving of tragedy and beauty come together and can never be separated. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked, 
them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Cassiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Cassiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did other disciples. Since disciples were known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciples, who was knowing of the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing in and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have had nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Cassiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warning himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, wore whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Cassiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate, centered in his headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
do you say this of your knowing accord or others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I am a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you the king? Jesus answered, You say that I am the king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said that, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate, took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. 
He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. If you would join me in this responsive reading. What is it this man did to you? I have found him guilty of nothing. He is not a revolutionary. He is no prophet. He is a danger to no one. I have given you Barabbas. What has this man done? I will whip him. Will that satisfy you? But what has he done? Fine, he is yours. I wash my hands of his blood. Let's continue as we worship. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called, to the place of the skull in which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others and on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription from the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, sorry, they took his garments and, and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots. For it to see who it shall be. This was to fool what scripture says. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. How are you guys doing tonight? (laughs) Voice is a little hoarse, so I hope you can put up with me here for the next couple of minutes. Um, So glad to be with you tonight, to worship with you, to linger here in this moment with you tonight. Believers all over the world today have gathered together, many from the times of 1 to 3 p.m., to focus 
on the last three hours of Jesus' moments on the cross. Many of them focused on the seven last statements of Jesus. It's been the tradition here at CFCC for, for uh, many years now to, to gather in the evening and to worship and to spend time in prayer and contemplating the importance of, of the cross. And over the years, I've noticed, I've noticed that this night, like Ash Wednesday, but this night is difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult to, to linger here. We don't linger a whole lot to begin with, right? We're not a people who just sort of loiter. We are people who are always on the move. And especially when it comes to healing, especially when it comes to, you know, to getting to a cure, we like to rush to the empty tomb. We like to rush to the end of the story instead of staying here and focusing on what the cross really means about us and what it means about God. Do we ever really consider what it is that we've been healed from? I mean, do we spend enough time really considering the reality of the ailment that we have within us? Do you have a grasp of what it is about you that requires the death of God? Do you have a suitable idea, your own evil that lurks within you? That's what's hard about Good Friday. Jesus says himself in in Luke chapter seven, verse 47, to the woman who's just anointed his feet, He says, basically, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who've been forgiven little, love little. And so if that's the case, and we have to pause on a night, especially a night like this, to recognize what sin is and to recognize its grip on our lives apart from Jesus. Because that acknowledgement of sin propels us to a need for a savior. We realize that we cannot save ourselves. We realize the dire straits that we're in apart from Jesus and that we need him desperately. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's that's the rhythm of a disciple is repentance and faith. Repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus as the only one who can save us. It's a constant rhythm cycle in our life, constantly seeing the sin in our lives that pushes us closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And and that's that's why I believe you're here tonight. You may not know it. You may not exactly know. Maybe you do. Maybe there's a part of you that knows that that you need saving. There's something bigger than you that you are can only reach as far as your arms go, you know? And that you need Jesus as your salvation. And so, again, many people avoid this subject matter altogether, but if, if what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
then we need to bring to Calvary the issues of sin and salvation and to consider them and approach this night with the utmost seriousness. If Easter is to mean anything at all, because those who have been forgiven much love much. We can't live in the power of the resurrection unless we've walked with Jesus to pause and look and listen. And so that, that said, my aim tonight, I was gonna try and keep this short. My voice, I'm gonna try and keep it shorter, I hope. My aim tonight is, is, is not for you to stay and sort of wallow in your sin, okay? That's not what Good Friday is about. That's, that's not the gospel. If we're to stay and just sort of, you know, gaze at our own navels and be so ashamed and so sin-filled and guilt-filled, that's not the gospel. The gospel points us to Jesus. And we're a gospel-centered church. What I hope happens tonight is that you look to the person of Jesus as your only hope. And that, that the acknowledgement of your sin and how great it is only makes you see how much greater God is, how much greater Jesus is. That's my hope for us tonight. And in that place is where the transformation happens, right? True transformation happens in that place. So linger with me here for just a few minutes as we look at the last statement of Jesus that we just, just heard read from the scripture in John chapter 19. The words, it is finished. My mom has an entry hall in her house and she got this thing in her head that she wanted a mural at the end of this hallway. And uh, she wanted me to, to paint this, this mural. After all, she'd paid for me to go to art school, right? Deserve something out of it. Problem is, I'm one, I'm a procrastinator, and two, I'm a painfully slow painter. Painfully slow. And so I finally started this, this mural on this wall in her entryway. And, uh, and, and I couldn't do it in one day. Couldn't do it in, in really even two or, or three days. And so I got to kind of a, a break point. And, and I, 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 I stopped. And, and there it sat, unfinished, on her wall for about four years. I've, okay, maybe five. And she would often remind me throughout this time that Michelangelo finished the Sistine Chapel in four and he made his own paintbrushes and scaffolding. I was encouraged to find out just recently that Michelangelo, creator of Moses, the creator of David, the Sistine Chapel, all this incredible artwork, when he died, actually left more works unfinished than he actually finished. It's true. It's true. Cecil Rhodes, who was a a, a prime minister of a region in Africa that is now Zimbabwe was known all over the continent and all over Zimbabwe. 
And he, he, he uh, accomplished all kinds of great things. And on his deathbed, his last words were recorded, so much to do, so little done. Even a guy as accomplished as Cecil Rhodes felt like um, he'd left a lot of things undone. Do you have any projects at home that are unfinished? And no, I hear one person back there, no, and his, no, his wife just nudged him. Do you have any work that's unfinished waiting for you on your desk? Do you have any projects that, that need to be completed? I hope I'm not the only one in here. It seems difficult to finish even the smallest and the simplest of tasks in a world as distracted as we are. And so, so to hear Jesus in a world full of unfinished assignments, incomplete tasks, to hear Jesus say these words from the cross, it is finished, seriously, may be the most significant words ever uttered, especially in this context. But it would appear, it would appear from the disciples' vantage point as they looked at the cross that, that it was an utter failure it was a total, a total disaster. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their talk about the kingdom. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can imagine the disciples, those gathered around, those who were left saying, what kingdom What comfort, what inheritance is left? Face the facts here. This is the end. This is death. But it is finished. What Jesus says here is not, I am finished. He uses very specific words. He doesn't say, I am done for. He says, it is finished. And it's a cry of victory. To telestai, the Greek word, it's, it's, it is made an end of, he says. It is paid for. It is performed. It is accomplished. All of these are ways of translating what Jesus said in those three words. It is finished. What he was saying was something significant here. God's original intent for us when he created us was to live in relationship with him to live in relationship with one another and to live in relationship with creation. He desired for us to be imitators of him. Imitators of him and not only to be holy, not for us to be gods, but for us to be fully human, to be whole and to be human. But instead of imitating God, Adam and Eve chose to imitate the enemy. And sin entered the world just like that. And sent us into the cycle of of breaking our relationship with God and breaking our relationship with with others around us and, and breaking our relationship with all of creation. We often we often think that that sin is is the failure to obey God's commands, but sin is much sin is much more than that. 
Just like traits and characteristics are passed down to us, sin is passed down to us, it's woven in us, it's in our DNA, it's the condition in which we live. It's not something that we do or don't do, it's the reality of life around us. One writer defines it this way, sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all else. Any thought or feeling or action that does not treasure God above all things. And so if that is the case, then if you're really honest with yourself, that's every waking moment of your life. It's not just that we that we see sin when we break God's commands, right? The God's commands, the law of God is like, it's like a magnifying glass that highlights the fact that we're sinful. It doesn't, it's not like sin wasn't there until we break the command. Sin has always been there and this, this benchmark is set so high that it highlights the fact that there is no one Righteous, no one good, no, not one. And this force in our lives is sin dehumanizes us and it keeps us from living in a loving relationship with God and others around us and in creation. And instead of taking us down the path toward reconciliation and redemption and love and peace, It takes us down the path of pride and envy and greed and rivalry and blame and violence. And this cycle continues in us today. It entered our world through Adam and it continues to be passed down in us. But this is the work that Jesus finished on the cross. This is the the work that Jesus finished completed on the cross. I have to be honest, as I I really wrestled with this message, I really, last night I was laying down on the floor trying to figure out exactly how to put this huge problem of sin in words, you know, to, to try and, I mean, it's presumptuous for me to even think I can. The greatest problem known to man and to put it in a a pithy statement. And I finally just felt God I finally just felt God speaking to me saying look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe one day in our Good Friday service we'll go through the gruesome detail of what Jesus endured on the cross but suffice it to say it was one of the most violent, torturous ways to die after being beaten and his his flesh laid bare and a crown of thorns pressed upon his head and nails pierced through the nerve endings in his wrist. Above his shoulders so that he couldn't breathe 
and was almost suffocated to death. Jesus bore that kind of death for us. He became sin. That's what sin looks like. That is what sin looks like. He became sin. The one who knew no sin, who didn't deserve it, became our sin for our sake. As if our sin belonged to him, not to us. He became our substitute, enduring what we should have endured. He, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He took the punishment upon himself and made us whole so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to know what your sin looks like, I don't have words. I just have a picture of Jesus on the cross. But by his wounds, we're healed. And because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice and his precious blood, only his blood, you and I, are made spotless. The mystery of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel that Erwin McManus was talking about, how this cross of shame could become this picture of hope. If you are a follower of Jesus, your salvation in him has been sealed through this act that Jesus finished. There's nothing that can take it away. And no matter what the consequence of, of that sin has been, it's, it's been thrown into the depths of the sea. No matter what that sin has, is in your life, it has been thrown into the depths of the sea. Romans 5.20, Paul talks about Adam and how sin entered into this world. But Jesus is the new Adam. And he says that where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. The word abounded there could be translated superabounded. Literally, superabounded. Your sins have been swept away by grace. And you no longer have to be under the power of any sin that you don't want to be. You no longer have to live under the power of immorality, under the power of addiction, under drugs, under alcohol, under some vice or some lifestyle. We've been freed by what Jesus did on the cross. It is finished. He has opened the door to our jail cell. It is simply up to us to get up and walk out. But I gotta be honest here that some of us, including myself, some of us don't always want to be freed from the vice that we're struggling with. Some of us don't want to change. Some of us don't want to, don't want to step out of the darkness that we're living in. But I'm telling you under the authority of scripture that if you want out, the door is open. He's, a, he's made the way available to us and the resources to be victorious over the power of sin are at hand. Embrace Jesus. It is finished. All of our sins were transferred to Jesus 
and righteousness has been transferred to our account. It is finished. God is satisfied with the work that Jesus has done. Are you? Are you satisfied with the work that he completed in Jesus? There's nothing you can add to it. It's been paid. And so praise God that the thing that he started in Genesis is now finished. When God, when God created Adam, he breathed life into the dust. He breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And Adam, in that moment, inhaled love. Here at the cross, Jesus, the second Adam, exhales. It is finished. The first Adam breathes in love. The second Adam breathes out love. Will you embrace it tonight? Embrace what Jesus has done on the cross. I want to lead us in a in a prayer here together, another call and response. It's just good for us to, to say these words together. You can stay seated. But I want to hear your voices as we read together. I'm going to read the first portion, and you'll read the part that is bolded. This is a confession in a lot of ways, and a prayer to give us strength to live the lives that God has called us to live. Lord, when we feel sorry for our sins, sorry for ourselves and we think we've sacrificed so much for others remind us Lord when our patience wears thin and we're ready to give up speak to us through the example of your endurance on the cross Lord when we get angry and feel like fighting back against those who would be our enemies help us remember your words to your enemies from the cross. Father, forgive. Lord, whenever we suffer in any way, keep us near the cross. Lord, when we are afraid to stand up for what is true and honorable, strengthen us with the courage with which you went to the cross. Lord, when we come to the time of death, uphold us with the assurance that life did not end for you on the cross. Fill us with the hope of resurrection and new life, which your cross continues to teach us each day. Amen. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, 
a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they lead Jesus there. Okay, here's the question. Do you believe you have a personal responsibility to share your faith? Surveys have shown that the overwhelming majority of you would answer yes. Okay, so what about this question? Have you shared your faith with anyone in the last six months? Surveys have shown that a majority of you would answer this question? No. I guess it's just not as easy as it seems, or at least as easy as we'd like it to be. Well, here's another question. How many times have you personally invited an unchurched person to church? Now this seems simple, right? And yet, surveys tell us that almost half of you would answer zero. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we don't, right? Like, maybe it still feels a little awkward and uncomfortable. Or maybe we're just unsure how effective it is. Or we just expect to hear them say, well, no. Okay, so listen to this. When people are asked why they came to church in the first place, the vast majority of them say, I began attending because someone invited me. It wasn't the music or the pastor. It wasn't the childcare, the youth program, or the building. Although these are all great things, important and valuable things, the main thing that got most of you up and through that door the first time wasn't any of these. It was an invitation. Easter will be here soon. It's the perfect Sunday to share with others what your faith is all about. And it can all start with one more simple question. Want to come to church on Sunday? Let's change the stats and let God change hearts and lives this Easter. And let's start with something simple. An invitation. So we're done. This is your mission. Go out and ask and invite your, par- your neighbors and friends to church. God bless.